We're going to be in Luke chapter 3, Acts chapter 20, and Matthew chapter 6. Luke 3, 7 to 14. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from those stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, for, tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Acts 20, 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Please pray with me. Jesus, we love you this morning and we thank you for everyone that has come to worship with us today. Thank you for the new Pepperdine students and ask that you would be preparing their hearts to honor you in the way that they go to school. Pray that you'd be encouraging them, uh, that you'd be filling them with your spirit and protecting them from any fear, any lies or accusations, anything that makes them feel uncomfortable at school, that they would know that you're with them, that you have a plan for them, that you have hopes for them, and that they can rely on you, that you're a strong foundation. And Jesus, we pray for Brian as he speaks and ask that you'd give him clarity and Give us humility to listen to your words and let them affect the way that we see you and understand you and the way we live our life. Jesus, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Uh oh. All right, good morning, everyone. Nice to see everyone this morning. We are starting a, um, a, a series on money, possessions, and the gospel, or and Jesus. And I know um, that every morning or every Sunday morning we gather together, there are some people that have jobs and they have income and they have money coming in. And there are some of you that are giving money away to universities and, and going backwards. But someday you'll make some money and... Uh, be hopeful. It's a great topic to think about, about giving and generosity and money. And let me give you a couple of people who um, I'm unaware of their, of their faith, but they live as examples of um, what the Bible says about giving. And you've heard of these people, okay? So generosity and giving. Warren Buffett has given thus far approximately 71% of his wealth away. 71%. That's lots of billions of dollars that he's given away. 
Bill Gates, number two, this is all from CNBC, um, the most generous billionaires. Bill Gates has given 22% of his wealth away. Michael Bloomberg has given um, approximately 10%. And then there is the man that many of us use his business probably every week. Jeff Bezos, Amazon, has given less than 0.1%. Less than 0.1%. Recently um, went through a divorce. His wife now is the third richest woman in the world. <laughs> New York Times article that I did not read. I'd already read all my New York Times free um, articles. <laughs> How Jeff Bezos went to Hollywood and lost control. Pastor Rick Warren worth approximately $25 million, pastor of a church in Orange County. Currently, this year, gives away 91% of his wealth. The 91% that he gives away. Some of you might have the thought, like maybe I did a little bit, if I was a billionaire, I would give it away. And you know what Rick Warren said about that? No, you won't. If you're not giving right now, if you're not a generous person right now, if you don't have a generous spirit right now, if you don't consider giving a little bit more when you get a raise, you probably won't. According to Pastor Rick Warren, who's been a pastor for many decades. So the idea of generosity is something we need to think carefully about. And by the way, this is not a, a, a fundraiser morning at all. That has nothing to do with it. I think it's really important, though, to think carefully about money and possessions and what Jesus says. And if you've been around church before, you know that, um, that preachers have said things like this, that Jesus talks about money more than anything else. Well, it's, it's, it is true. So we need to be just very thoughtful and, and think about this. You can learn to be generous. Some of, uh, some of us by nature tend to be more generous. Some of us taught, were taught at a young age to be generous. I've shared this story before, but I, I have a, a friend of mine that um, up in Washington where I grew up that I've been friends with since fourth grade. I'm 48 now, so for a really long time. And we were best friends. And like best friends, we got into arguments all the time and fought. And, and uh, one time, probably was 11 or 12 years old, we got into a big argument. We were at my house. I was probably asked him to help me do my chores. He said, no, I do that all the time. That's the only reason why, only reason why you invite me over. I'm going home. I don't remember the argument. We got into an argument. Stomps off home and uh, gets about a block away and finds a $50 bill laying in the road. Comes running back to me, happy, smiling, joyful. What argument? And he splits it with me. He gives me half. Okay, this is probably 1982. That's a lot of video game playing. That's fishing poles. That's lures. That's all kinds of fun things to buy. Very generous. To this day, to this day, my friend Tim is one of the most generous people I know. He owns a, um, a backhoe operating business. Very generous. And he is known in the small town of somebody who donates his time, his resources, and is a very generous person. And so we need to think carefully uh, about this. And um, the passage that we looked at, um, that, that we'll look at this morning that Joel read, 
has some hard words. And I think it's worth it, though, if we just, if we can slow down and think carefully about it, I think it'll make sense. So let me just say this to some of you here this morning that maybe you're not Christians and you're thinking about Christianity and maybe you're a little bit skeptical about Christianity. You, you might be right. Occasionally, I'll, I'll listen or do some reading of uh, Bill Maher, and he's very critical of, of religion and, and uh, the negative impact it can have, that religion can have on society. And what I want to share with you this morning is that John the Baptist is saying similar things. He's talking about the danger of being religious without Jesus truly touching your heart, changing your heart. Rick Warren said this, you can give without love. You can be a giving person without love, but you cannot love without giving. It's a very simple um, kind of capture of, of my sermon this morning. You cannot love without being a giving person. And we're talking more about even our, our dollars and our wealth. We're talking about a generosity of spirit, of our time, of our forgiveness, of our love. So this morning, I want to challenge us to grow. I want to challenge us to think. I want us to consider the words of Christ and how we can think carefully about this. One book I read this week said this, 40% of people in the United States of America who regularly attend church give 0%. Give nothing. Give nothing. And so we need to be very careful and thoughtful about the words that we choose about identifying ourselves as Christians and saying who we love and what we love. Because love... Here's a simple definition of generosity. Love is generosity, excuse me, generosity is love in action. We all like to think of ourselves as generous. We, we, no one here, including me, um, wants to think of ourselves as being greedy or materialistic. It's, it's, it's not a, uh, something that is acceptable today. But here's one thing we need, and I read this this week. The most disruptive sin in your life is the sin you don't see. The most disruptive sin in your life is the sin you don't see. And one of the sins that's hardest for us to see is greed, is the role of money and materialism in our hearts. And so here's the thing. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are right to evaluate Christianity in light of Christians being generous. There is something inconsistent and something not quite right if Christians profess to follow Christ and they're not generous. And that's what John the Baptist is going to talk to us about this morning. So, part one is this. We need to understand money and possessions in light of the gospel to understand money and possessions in light of the gospel. So let's look at this story. This is a story um, in, in Luke that is often overlooked, and, uh, and it's, but it's meaningful. So this is, when John the, this is before Jesus is on the scene. John the Baptist is pointing people and talking to people. 
and he's drawing this big crowd. And um, I will just a slight little footnote here for one second. Um, my family and I went to Israel in January, and it, it is, man, if you ever get a chance to go, you got to go, because the part that we're talking about this morning, like we've been there, and we were singing in, in worship this morning, and I was thinking about this passage and what John the Baptist was talking about, and like, you can go and walk these steps, and it, it just adds some significance to our lives. And so here's what John the Baptist is doing. He's preaching um, in the Dead Sea Jordan River area, and there's a large crowd of people that are listening to him. He's drawing a crowd. Now, I don't know how he draws a crowd because here's how he starts his sermon. He says, verse 7, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized. And we know there's a large people, group of people. He says, you brood of vipers. That's his sermon introduction. That's his, uh, maybe his main point. It's not very nice, if you don't know, we'll explain this here, but it's not a kind thing to call someone a son of a snake. So, John the Baptist, he's not um, your modern day popular evangelical preacher that has lots of very like slick, cool, catchy things to say. He's highly critical, and this is where his, his criticism of religion comes out. So, it's not a good thing. So we need to ask the question, who is John the Baptist referring to when he's calling people a brood of vipers? Poisonous people, destructive people. He's saying, John the Baptist is saying, you are a destructive person. If what? Who are these people? Well, we don't know for sure in Luke, but in Matthew's gospel, he says that these people are Pharisees and Sadducees. They are the religious people. They are the religious moralists. These are people who know the Bible well, but their heart has not been changed. So we need to think about this for a second. Why would John the Baptist be critical and brutally honest with people who professed to be followers of God, who knew the Bible well, but they were missing something? And that's what we'll talk about. What were they missing? They were missing something significant. So he says this. <clears throat> he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So there's judgment coming. There is judgment coming to the people who pretend to be Christians. To, who pretend to play this religious game. So this is a, this is a little bit more of, a, of an eye-opening sermon to people who profess to be Christ, uh, to profess to be Christians, followers of Jesus. And he, here's what he says. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says this, he, he kind of repeats this judgment. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So he's saying this, don't claim your religious heritage. Don't claim that because you grew up in the church, this, he's, they're referring to their past, their spiritual heritage. <clears throat> he says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the shiny, sharp ax blade is setting there at the tree. John is trying to get a message, trying to get something important to our attention. 
If we look back in John's beginning words, he says that, and he's quoting from Isaiah, and he ta- I'll read this. It's just a few verses before. I don't believe it's in the bulletin. He says this, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so this is an, uh, an illusion. Here's what would happen. In ancient times, when a dignitary or somebody important or significant would come to your city or town, you would, and we, the modern day would be the, the red carpet, that they would make a road nice, that they would prepare a way for this person to be show respect and to show dignity and honor. But John the Baptist is saying, I'm not taking that in a literal sense. He's talking about our hearts, that we're to prepare our hearts for what is coming. And he says we prepare our hearts by first being aware of warning, uh, a time of warning. We need to be crystal clear, though, on what John the Baptist is saying and who this invitation is to. So he's inviting people to be baptized. C.S. Lewis um, wrote an article in 1943. If you haven't heard of C.S. Lewis, he's considered by many to be maybe one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis were asked to write a paper about the reason for God. Um, and PBS did a, a review of it, and very interesting. P- PBS described C.S. Lewis as one of the most significant thinkers of the 20th century. He writes an article in 1943 clarifying and to help us understand the, the gospel. And he says, let's put human beings into three groups of people to help us understand. Sometimes we think of people in two groups. Here's a, a, a pro-God group, and here's a group that says, I'm just going to live my life my own way. C.S. Lewis says there's a better way to think of it. Here's what he says. Group one, <clears throat> this is a story, <clears throat> excuse me, a story written in 1943. Group one is this. The first class of those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure. So he says this group, one group this way. There are certain people in the world that they only live for themselves. That everyone exists in this world for my own sake, for my own pleasure, that life is my own, I live for me alone. And do we see that today? Some people live that way. Me first, all the time, always. Group two, according to C.S. Lewis, the second class is a religious group, those who acknowledge some other claim upon their life, the claim of the will of God. They try to surrender to the higher claim, God, as much as he demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Here's Here's what he says. They divide their life into parts. Here's a God part. Here's a me part. A God part, a me part. The religious people. And then C.S. Lewis says, group three, The third group are those who claim in the way that St. Paul does that for them to live is Christ. 
to live is Christ, the Christ in me. <clears throat> Which group do you think John the Baptist is calling you brood of vipers? This is the danger of religion. It's group two. People who profess God, who, who have some moral standard that they try to hold on to, but they are not in that group which, which says, for me to live is Christ. And so John is saying this, there needs to be a true repentance. There needs to be a difference between a superficial religious commitment and a heart transformation. And that's why John says this, bearing fruits, a fruitful life, and we'll explain that, in keeping with repentance. In keeping with repentance. Now, repentance is a, is a word that can be challenging to understand, and so we'll We'll grab some other people who are insightful in such things. Tim Keller does an, has an article, and I think we passed it out this morning, about repentance and helping us understand that. Also, John Stott has some thoughts. John Stott is an English author, and he, he writes this. I'll just highlight a few things so we can understand this word repentance. John Stott says this. At its simplest, Christ's call was, follow me. In its most simple form, Jesus says those two words, follow me. But what do those words mean? Here's what he says, talking about repentance. Stott says, let me be more explicit about what it means to follow Christ. And he says this, if you want to follow Christ, you must forsake something. You must forsake yourself. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you can't follow Christ and follow yourself there has to be a forsaking. And what is, it, what is that forsaking? Number one, he says this, three brief things. Let me be more explicit about the forsaking, which cannot be separated from following Christ. First, there must be a renunciation of sin. This, in a word, is repentance. It is the part of the Christian conversion. It can, in no circumstance, be bypassed. Repentance and faith belong together. We cannot follow Christ without forsaking sin. Step two, he says this, or part two. There must be a renunciation of self. In order to follow Christ, there must not only be a forsaking of isolated sin, but a renouncing of the very principle of self-will, which lies at the root of every single act of sin. The third tributary of this stream we call repentance is this, which Jesus used to describe the renunciation of self is to lose our life. Whoever loses his life shall save it. The astonishing idea in current times is that we like to enjoy the benefits of Jesus, enjoy the benefits of salvation without accepting the challenge of his sovereign lordship. Stott says this, such an unbalanced notion is not found in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord is the earliest formulation of the creed of Christians. And so John the Baptist uses this harsh language to get across the significance of the fruits of repentance. One last few little thoughts on repentance. Tim Keller says this, distinguishing genuine repentance and religious repentance. He says this, religious repentance is bitter all the way down. 
In religion, our only hope is to live a good enough life that requires God to bless us. Every instance of sin and repentance is therefore traumatic, unnatural, and horribly threatening. In the gospel, our knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit our flaws. The more, and this is key to me, this is the, the other part of repentance. The more you are aware of God's grace and acceptance, the more you are aware of God's love for you, the more you are able to drop the denials and self-defense and admit the true dimensions of sin in your life. The growing awareness of God's love and his grace in your life makes you more open to dealing with the underlying issues of our life. So John the Baptist is being brutally honest and harsh towards people who say, I'm a follower of God, but they're missing something. And here's what's really interesting. We'll go a little bit quicker now. What is that thing that they're missing? What is the fruit of salvation? What is the fruit of repentance? And here's the answer. Verse 7 says this. Or, or, just for clarity, fruit number one of evidence of genuine repentance is humility. The fruit of genuine repentance is humility. Look what happens. Verse 10 says, And the crowds ask him, John the Baptist, What then shall we do? It's repeated three times. The people want to know from John. We, we want a sincere faith. We want a sincere, honest relationship with Jesus. So what do we do? And here's what's interesting. Verse 11 says this. And he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Of all the things that John could have picked, which would have shown genuine heart transformation, it's how we treat people. He doesn't say you, you need to pray more. He doesn't say you need more faith. He doesn't say um, you need to go on a missions trip. He doesn't say you need to join a small group. He says that you'll love people. That how you treat people will be different. And then he says it again. The next group. Verse 12. The tax collectors. The despised people. Because they were known. So here's how this worked in, in Bible times. And this, uh, this still happens today occasionally. Four or five years ago, quick, quick story, four or five years ago, when I was a teacher, we would take trips down to Baja. Our school had partnered with an orphanage there. And this was years ago when we could do this, take a day trip down there. We have a bus loaded up with all these supplies, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of supplies to give this orphanage. We get to the border, and the border agent says, no, not coming through. Hundred dollars, I'll let you through. And one of the teachers like, we can't, we can't do that. We can't, like, what do we do? Do we play the game, the bribe game? Do we say no? And then we can't get in. And the orphanage is missing all the stuff we promised. Or do we do the, so this is the kind of stuff that tax collectors would do. Pay your tax. And by the way, you owe me a little extra. So what does he say to them? 
tax, um, verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. So they want in. They want, they want God in their life. And John says this, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Become a person of integrity, of honesty. Stop being dishonest. Stop making money through dishonesty. Next, soldiers come. Soldiers function almost as a kind of a type of policeman. So here's what they would do. Here's how they would scam people. They'd come up to you and see your car and say, hey, well, car, donkey, whatever thing you want to pick. Hey, your donkey is reported as stolen. That one with that black mark on his tail. That donkey is reported as stolen. I'm taking it. It's not yours. I'll return it. And I won't return it. It's mine. So here's what he says to the soldiers. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Of all the things that John the Baptist talks about, about the fruits of repentance, about a genuine life transformation, when Jesus Christ has changed your life, the evidence that it is real is that we, ha- we will have a new perspective on our money. It's the common theme through these three groups of people. All different types of jobs, all different types of people, the common theme is money. And the common theme is generosity. The common theme is integrity. The common theme is contentment with your wages. And if you want to know how Christianity is different in the world today, we look at the words of Jesus and what he has to say about money. John the Baptist is initiating and preparing the way for Jesus. This is the front bookend. The last bookend comes from Acts chapter 20. It's in your bulletin. This is one of the rare places that we have the words of Jesus that are not in the Gospels. Luke is writing this. It's the Apostle Paul. And he says this, the words of Jesus. Well, I'll back up just a little bit to give you context. Verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard, look how this is, look at the common theme, that Paul is going to earn his money by working hard, not defrauding people. And then he says this, We must help the weak. What kind of Christianity is it that ignores the weak? What kind of Christianity is it where there's no generosity to help those who have genuine needs? It's a made-up gener- made Christianity. It's not the one found in the Bible. And Jesus says this. He says, remember the words of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, how he himself said this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. So we have a person before Jesus. We have a person, the Apostle Paul, after Jesus. And both of them are saying things that go against culture today. 
Make money, be profitable, have a business that's profitable, but do it with integrity, with honesty. Don't defraud people. Don't deceive people. Don't take advantage of people. And use the profits to love and care for people. What kind of society would we be if Christians live this out? What kind of church would we be? What kind of community would we be? And we think about this for a second. 40% of people who go to church every Sunday give zero. There's some kind of tension. There's something wrong. And that's why people like Bill Maher, who says Christianity is a sham. When 40% of people who profess to be Christians ignore the words of Christ. The most basic and fundamental message of Jesus here. John the Baptist and Paul is to help those who are weak, to help those who have need. Verse 36, it's not in your bulletin, but the Apostle Paul is leaving this group of people and it says this, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word He had spoken, and he would not see them again. So this is Paul's final contact with these people, and he delivers this message. You are more blessed to give than to receive. So why does Jesus talk so much about money? It's an important question to think through. It maybe can't even be answered just in one sermon. But one thing we do know is money has the power to capture us. It has the power to pull us away from Jesus. And that's why he says in Jesus' first sermon, we'll finish with this. He says, do not, Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. All right? And here's one thing that's important. To me, there's lots of really important things here. But do not lay up. Jesus is not saying you can't have a nice car. You can't go on a family vacation. He's not saying these kinds of things. He wants, your first priority should be to take care of the needs of your family, of course. The key word here is lay up. As we read with John the Baptist, he said, if you have two jackets, give one away. It's the idea of hoarding. Verse 21 says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's one way to think about that. Whatever you treasure, whatever you like the most in this world, that's the thing you will spend money on the most easily. Whatever things you look at on the internet in your free time, and it's different for all of us, a remodeled kitchen, a new dress, a new pair of shoes, all these kinds of different things, they're all fine, they're all good. But if you're not being a generous person, if you're a hoarder, If you're not looking at the words of Jesus carefully and seriously, those things are the things that function as treasure in our lives. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're contemplating Christianity, I would encourage you to um, be very careful and very thoughtful about the Christians that you speak to and talk to Because at the most foundational level, if there is not a generosity of spirit, of time, of resources, of money, 
they've created a hybrid religion. They've, hi, they've hijacked the words of Jesus and created their own form of Christianity. The fruits of repentance. Repentance is this idea of returning to Jesus. And I think that is uh, an important concept for us all to remember this morning, that when we can run to Jesus, we can be honest about our impatience, about our anger, about our lack of generosity, about being captured by the things of this world, a lack of friendliness, a lack of kindness, a lack of gentleness. Just think through the fruit of the Spirit. John the Baptist says that evidence of a genuine relationship with Jesus is that there will be character transformation. We'll be more generous, more kind, more loving, more patient. And we will open up our hands to our possessions and to money. We'll study this for a few weeks. And one of the things that as I studied more this week is that there is such joy and goodness in giving. And I feel like if, if we don't understand the value and the goodness of giving, you're missing out on the blessings of the Christian life. Like you're missing a huge piece of the Christian life. The, 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 the joy it brings to be able to give and to help people and to love people, to put love into action. If there's something maybe we need to repent of is that our love has become static, that it has become talk, that it's not a love that is one of action. As we conclude in worship, we will pray together right now that the Holy Spirit would remind us of the love of God, the grace of God, the acceptance, and also the encouragement to be people who put love into action. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts to the words we find in the Gospel of Luke from John the Baptist, who's pointing to your son, Jesus. We pray that we would not be stuck on religious repentance that's filled with guilt and shame, but with the good news of the gospel, that we are more loved than we know, that there's everlasting grace. And I pray that that would warm our hearts and soften us against being defensive, being prideful, but there would be a softness that allows us to listen carefully to the words found in the Bible. We thank you so much. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.